Thank you for joining us today. My name is Brad Miller, and this is the Chronically Human Podcast, where we have discussions aimed at creating a better world with more individual freedom and less unnecessary suffering. We have an amazing guest today, Dr. John Ratty. Dr. Ratty is a best-selling author, an associate clinical professor of psychiatry at Harvard Medical School, an internationally recognized expert in the field of neuropsychiatry, and is the author of the book, Spark, The Revolutionary New Science of Exercise in the Brain, which shows that we can use our bodies to heal and protect our brains. He is also the author of Go Wild, that shows how we can achieve optimal physical and mental health by getting in touch with our caveman roots. Dr. Ratty breaks down the most cutting-edge science that proves we can use exercise to power and protect our brains, how a school district in Illinois harnessed the power of exercise to help their students finish first in the world in an international standardized test in science and sixth in the world in math, and how you too can use exercise to improve your memory, create a more positive outlook on life, be more creative, and most importantly, protect your brain as you age, because our brain is our greatest asset. Dr. Raddy explains why along with exercise, socially is, socializing is vitally important for physical and mental health. He also discusses what he means when he talks about the paleolithic rhythms of our ancestors and how we can use them as a guide to live a healthier and happier life. I exercise my health freedom by choosing to consume Kratom. Kratom is a natural herbal supplement that's been used for hundreds of years in Southeast Asia. I've been in chronic pain for over 30 years now and I exclusively use Kratom along with CBD oil to manage my pain. The only Kratom I trust comes from Urban Ice Organics. They extensively test their products for quality and purity. They follow stringent manufacturing practices, and they work tirelessly to keep Kratom legal for all. You can find Urban Ice Organics at naturalorganics.com. That's Natural Organics with organic spelled O-R-G-A-N-I-X.com. Use the promo code Chronically Human 20 with no spaces at checkout to get 20% off your next order. I really enjoyed our conversation today with Dr. Ratty as he explains the science behind the old adage, if you don't use it, you lose it. Thanks for listening and let us know your thoughts on using exercise to improve, protect, and heal the brain. Thank you, John, for being on the show today. I'm glad to be with you. Well, excellent. Well, your book, Spark, uh, you wrote back in 2008, had a really positive impact on my life. In fact, I actually had one of my Toastmaster speeches I based partially on your book. I think it was called Miracle Grow for the Brain. This was years ago. But the book is really filled with a lot of amazing information that I think is still relevant today about exercise in the brain. But before we jump in and talk about your book, can you give us a little bit of your background? Sure. Well, I'm a psychiatrist. I'm an uh, associate professor of psychiatry at Harvard Medical School. Uh, I came up as an athlete uh, all my life, and so therefore my interest in exercise uh, and the and psyche and the brain always have uh, paid attention to that. <clears throat> and so uh, then. It was a ranked tennis player, had tennis scholarships, uh, so uh, that really cemented me into the exercise and athletic field. Um, <clears throat> uh, then uh, in medical school, I took up, became very interested in research, and uh, then in my psych, came back to Harvard here and, and uh, uh, got very interested in 
how uh, medicine worked in, in the brain for a while. Uh, back in when medicine was, we were just beginning to use it in, intelligently somewhat uh, for people and uh, uh, began to look at aggression, autism, ADHD, and then uh, always with the uh, uh, thinking about how uh, exercise might play a role uh, because we knew it had a big impact on mood and anxiety and stress, uh, but then how it has an effect on now on attention deficit disorder and 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 today working a lot with uh, people who have to deal with the addictions or trying to prevent the addictions uh, as well and certainly the the big motor uh, to behind all this research that's come out and keeps coming out on exercise is uh, how exercise helps to prevent the onset of cognitive decline and aging uh, and Alzheimer's disease so um, it's uh, been a very big uh, large swatch of the population that we we look at uh, that is everybody um, and uh, uh, to improve things and uh, in their lives to improve their w sense of well-being uh, and I lecture now all over the world and involved uh, <clears throat> from China to the Middle East uh, in a variety of projects as well certainly here in the States and in Canada. So I'm pretty much on the go all the time. Well, fantastic. Well, I'm glad you had some time for us today because like I said, the book really had a positive impact on my life and it really motivates me now as I'm rereading the book to really take charge of my mental processes and to, to improve how I think and how I feel through exercise. I think that's one of the the true blessings of the book is that we can control more of our thought processes than we believe. Absolutely. And I think most people know that. Uh, they know that sort of by experience uh, when they work out or when they have had a good game or playing or, uh, uh, and, and they know they feel that much better, but they don't, they don't know that. Uh, they don't remember that, and that's the biggest problem uh, for motivation, which is a huge, huge area of need and of interest today uh, of how we can sustain motivation to exercise. Um, and a big part of that, it's been studied for years by the University of Michigan, uh, and uh, they're seeing now that have learned over time that the best way to improve motivation is to look at how exercise is affecting me today. The big problem is looking at a long-term goal, like losing weight, getting buff, you know, curing this, doing that. Uh, but it's, it's really a matter for sustaining your motivation to stay with it is to remember, oh, when I exercise in the morning, boy, does my day go better. Boy, am I sharper. Boy, am I more motivated. Boy, yeah, 
we, we know that. Or in the, in the evening, boy, that, that helps me calm down. Or midday, that helps me keep going. So there's always these uh, things that we know we know, but we don't know we know. And I think Spark uh, <clears throat> really tried to look at the information we had then, and we have tons more now uh, to support all that uh, is in the book then about how exercise doesn't not, not just work for our bodies, although it, that's such so tremendous um, its effect, but uh, really how it affects the brain and, uh, and our mood, our psyches, our feelings about ourselves and others. Definitely. And the idea that we have more control over how we feel, I think, is so important nowadays as we have chronic stress and that our lifestyle really doesn't match up with how our genes evolved in that environment. And one of the topics you talked about was paleolithic rhythm. That's the idea that we don't live in uh, the rhythm that our genes are used to and that when you do exercise, you're trying to reactivate or to use those pathways to help us to feel calmer, to feel more confident, and to, to be able to exist in this crazy world we're in. Exactly. And I think that's one of the... Uh, it led to uh, my, my more, most current book called Go Wild, uh, which is all about living according to our genes from uh, uh, looking at diet, sleep, uh, uh, exercise, certainly, uh, nature, our need to be connected to nature, um, being mindful, and overall, the most important is being connected and remaining connected to others uh, and in our home relationship or work relationship or play relationship to develop and sustain these small tribes because that provides us with so much uh, of what we need to successfully deal with this crazy world we're in now. Definitely. I'm glad you brought up about tribes and socialization. I think that we did evolve as humans as extremely social creatures. That's why we're able to cooperate on the scale that we do. But at the same time is that we were evolved that I've read to be in a tribe of maybe 100 to 150 people at the most. And so we can get overwhelmed by when we're exposed to all this other stuff going around the world, it feels like we are disconnected. How, how do you recommend feeling more connected or actually being more connected with people? Well, I think, you know, first, it, it, I like to join the two. Uh, that is exercise and, and socialization. Mm -hmm. So being involved in, in social groups that are exercising, you know, like uh, you look at the popularity today of some of them, of the, uh, uh, the running groups, the biking groups, the, and today the, you're talking to me in Cambridge and Boston, and it's the Boston Marathon. It's a huge group that people uh, have been, but there's this weekend, this area was overwhelmed with these uh, probably 30,000 people from all over the world here in, in, in the area uh, participating in the Boston Marathon. And they were all members of other teams and groups, whole teams came into town. 
just to, to run. Not Maybe they didn't really place to get into the Boston Marathon, but they were running nonetheless. Um, and it was, it was quite remarkable, and we see this every year here. So, But, there, you know, things like CrossFit and Zumba and yoga groups that are wildly popular uh, are groups, small tribes. Uh, people get into these things, and, and that helps to sustain the... The, the rhythm, the commitment to exercise, but it also adds an other huge element of uh, challenge, if you will, for the brain, you know, and that's what we want to do to make our brain best, is to challenge it to because it loves to be challenged, just like our muscles, uh, so that we grow uh, our brains. And when we grow our brains, we sustain them and they get better and they help manage our moods and help make us smarter. Um, and it's a fact and we do. So uh, and there's all kinds of studies now there. I can tell you at the spark I wrote 10, 11 years ago or finish. But it's amazing what we're what, what's being published today in the science literature on, on exercise and, and the brain, fine-tuning it to say, oh, you might want to consider when you're doing uh, strength training to, to be better, you might think about doing it faster. In other words, focusing on power rather than just pure strength. And a big study showed just recently that this was promoting longer lives in people who did that. Um, you know, in other words, walking upstairs is a, is a great example of, of power because you have to be moving, you're, 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 you're increasing your strength by forcing those muscles to move, but you're doing it quicker. And, and, uh, uh, and a lot of people don't think like that, but it's... It, it, and they compared it to people who just lifted weights and, and took their time. Today, with this, like circuit training in, in the gyms, you got to move fast because the next person behind you is pushing you to go. That's so, true. In a way, it's, uh, we, know, we, we call it anaerobic or we call it strength training. But believe me, you're aerobic the whole time. You're there because you're, you're being forced to move quicker, but that's a good thing. Uh, so we're learning just in the past couple months. So uh, we're learning evidence with the evidence to show that. Because you talked about beforehand, it's common sense, but at the same time, you're starting to see for over the last 10 years, really the, the scientific evidence that this stuff works. And you talk about fine tuning. I think that's important too, because there's a lot of people out there who are in these uh, competitive sports, especially MMA. Uh, have you ever worked with any MMA folks? We've got uh, a friend of ours. He's a, he was the first Irishman in the UFC, the ultimate fighting championship. And now he's a trainer actually in Boston. So I didn't know if you've worked with any MMA fighters about fine tuning their training. No, I have not. That's one group I haven't had much contact with. Uh, I've worked with uh, every, every um, a lot of other areas. I'm working with swimmers and runners and bikers and uh, various other groups, but uh, never 
never MMA, not cross my path, but certainly very much with the martial arts. Uh, and maybe that's the tie in, but it's usually more pure and not trying to kill one another. So <laughs> There are rules, but not too many, but I can see where you're coming from. Now you talked about the Boston marathon that's happening right now. And I actually completed my first marathon. Uh, it was about 2007, 2008 when I, when I was reading your book and I'd used a, another book as my actual training schedule. And we had the psychology professor on David Whitsett, who wrote the book, a non runners marathon trainer. And he talks about the idea of visualization and using cognitive tools to help to sustain that motivation. Do you ever work with visualization or what do you recommend as far as keeping that motivation going when people, because you really, a lot of times it's hard to overcome that inertia of habit. And do you, what kind of techniques do you use to help people to get over that? Well, it, it, I mean, that's a good one. Visualization is, is a great one. And that's why, Having a commitment to a group or to a time during the week or to days during the week uh, is, is a way of visualizing, if you will. You know, it's a way of seeing yourself out there and doing it or talking about it and thinking about it uh, that promotes the experience to sort of be riveted into your head a little bit. Oh, I got to get there. At, at two o'clock on Thursday or whatever. I used to play squash for 30 years, three times a week. And uh, those times with my partners were sacred. You know, I wouldn't, we would we were often out of town, but that's, you can't help that. But, um, but, we had enough people, the foursome, fivesome actually, that we could always uh, count on one or two other people to, to be there. And so we had this ongoing, uh, you know, Ron Robin uh, to play three times a week. And it was wonderful. I had to stop when I ruined my shoulder, but that's life. That's age. Eventually, it catches up with us all, but exercise does help push that down the road, right? That it helps not only the body, but you talked about earlier about cognitive decline. And I saw a very disturbing advertisement over and over the other day about dementia that is hitting people under the age of 60 now. And there's a large group that it's happening younger and younger to, it seems like. Are you seeing that as well, that cognitive decline is hitting people earlier in life? And is it more severe than it has been in the last 25 years? I personally, as a, as a physician, I have not. I've heard about it certainly, uh, but uh, and I, but I can tell you what some of the reasons for that. I mean, our sedentary lifestyle is a big, big reason, and that goes hand in glove with our being overweight. And then when you get overweight, then you're in uh, you know diabetes type two territory or metabolic syndrome, which is pre-diabetic. And, and those are uh, big uh, predictors or uh, um, big... Uh, those risk factors for cognitive decline? Risk factors, there you go. Risk factors for uh, not just cognitive decline, but Alzheimer's disease. Mm. And, and 
and that's what those are. And and so I wouldn't it wouldn't surprise me that we're seeing a lot more because our our obesity rates continue to go up, uh, maybe st stabilizing a little bit, but they're very stabilizing at a very high level. Mm. And uh, we know that uh, this chronic uh, intake of high sugar loads uh, are toxic to our cells, uh, certainly our brain cells. And this then leads to them uh, potentially eroding quicker. Definitely. And I, I've seen that, you know, just in my day, in my sphere, you know, you do see the cognitive decline in folks and that does scare you because I know somebody personally who lost their father with Alzheimer's and he was in his, I think, late forties. And so that does, that's definitely something that uh, I think a lot of people worry about. Now in the book Spark, there was a, a great story about Naperville, Illinois and about the kids there and about the cognitive benefits that those kids got by being in a running class where they would get their heart rate up. Now, do why did you think that the kids were benefited from that? And do you think that adults will find the same benefits as the kids did? Or do you think that as we age, we have less neuroplasticity and we have less ability to change really those patterns? The short answer is no, it doesn't change. Uh, we still have that capacity. The, the, the big answer about Naperville is, is that it's not just running groups they were in. I mean, it, it, was, that, it was that particular class, but the whole thing about Naperville is that they devoted their, their PE teachers had come to Jesus and figured out that uh, their kids were getting remaining unhealthy and getting and not getting healthier even though they had the kids five days a week um, in PE and they were devoted and so they they thought well okay let's try something and this brilliant PE teacher said well I'm gonna even though I'm a a uh, dyed-in-the-wool Chicago Cubs baseball fan back then uh, and uh, a coach and all that, he said, I'm going to throw the balls out and had all the kids running and doing calisthenics and uh, all this for a few years. And then at this great sort of moment uh, to transition to a new level when he realized that his athletes were still getting the best grades uh, because he was using the markers of fastest, longest running, most endurance, all that as the guide. And so what he did is said, well, why don't I have them compete against themselves? So he had this brilliant idea of getting uh, everyone fitted up with uh, heart rate monitors. And then it changed everything. So all the kids got their grades by being uh, the percentage of time they were being in their cardiac training zone during the, the PE classes. And this just un, had an unbelievable effect on uh, the student body. So you eventually all the schools in the school district uh, changed over. Uh, so you had uh, 19,000 kids in this school district, big school district. And uh, why I got to know about them is they were on front line when we were beginning to worry about the obesity crisis in 2003, 
and their PE teacher was on and they were talking about how they had changed over and he quoted me on, on it. So I had already been talking about uh, exercise and its effect on uh, the brain, BDNF and everything. And he was talking about how this it translated into his kids being that much quicker, that much smarter, that much better in school. And in fact, uh, a couple of years before that, 99% of the kids had taken the, the TIMS test, the International Science and Math test, which every country takes every three years to sort of see how they're doing uh, compared to other countries um, when science and math. And the U.S. is always in the mid to low teens. And so he had, or not he had, but the school uh, had lobbied with the committee to take the Tim's test as a country, uh, the kids from Naperville. So ninth graders took it and uh, they came in number one in the world in science and number six in math. That got me on an airplane uh, to, to learn about Naperville as I was already talking a lot about exercise and its effect on the brain. And here was, to me, an emblematic uh, program that focused on exercise and focused on how this led to uh, improvement on in their cognition and and uh, and eventually on their test scores, but also they were they were at the top of the heap in terms of schools in in Illinois, and a big part of that uh, was because they had this incredible incredible PE program every day, where all the kids were um, you know not only were they among the fittest kids, but among the smartest kids. So this this is led me to to further do some hard research, getting together a thousand papers, reading them, uh, worrying about them, abstracting them, then starting to write it. Um, so I uh, that's how Spark came into being. Well, thank you. it's it's a fascinating story. Those kids, nineteen thousand kids. And the obesity rate, I believe, was around 3% versus, I think it's something crazy like 30% for the general population as far as teenagers go. It wasn't obesity. It was being overweight. Oh, okay. Gotcha. Overweight. Those two get conflated a lot, don't they? Yeah, yeah. No, and, and they, they went into the two huge high schools they have there, 7,500 kids, where they didn't find one obese child. So if you had come through their program, your chances of being obese were negative. You just didn't, you know, and, and part of it was because they were, had to be moving and people were all grade hungry. And so that was a motive in itself to get in their, their clock in, their time spent in their cardiac training zone. Um, and, uh, so they didn't have this this problem with being overweight or obese. And every time I went back to the school, I saw all these kids running around, super motivated, very much felt in shape, 
you know, and it, it just was marvelous to see and ready to take on the world. And they did. And they were. That's, that's an, it's truly amazing story. You think this would be plastered everywhere still today, you know, 10 years later, I think it still resonates with people because everybody is looking to help the next generation, especially because like you wrote, you wrote that every revolution relies on the young. And so the, the younger you get the kids, I think the better. Do you think that program is applicable to even like elementary schools or junior high schools? Or do you think high school is the best place for it? Oh, no, this was through the whole program. Uh, this is through their, their whole program. And they started in elementary school, but certainly in middle school. I mean, it started in the middle school, so seventh to ninth graders and um, or sixth to ninth. Uh, but it was also it, it, it had gone down into the elementary schools where they were focused more on getting the kids fit and keeping them fit. So the, the number one goal of their PE program was fitness as opposed to sports and, and all that. That came, which, by the way, after they got so many fit people, their, their teams began to win more and more uh, championships So because uh, they, they had more and more people to draw from, you know, that, uh, uh, for, for all the other sports and, and, and things like that. But. Yeah, it applicable. Yes, and it, every time I'm often asked to go to schools, and 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 often with the idea, well, can we make a Naperville here? You know, can we do that same thing here? And it's so hard for you know to put another burden on a school district because so many uh, school districts are so beset with new rules every year. The poor teachers, they they so traumatized by, okay, we got this, we, we finally got this program going up oh, two years later, let's change the program, you know, whatever it is. And I'm not, not just talking about PE, certainly. But so what gets cut away is, is more, is less, is time in PE, time in the younger grades in, on recess. Um, so there are many programs that actually that came from Spark. Uh, in the elementary schools to get, uh, one of them is called Box, which is now in 4,700 elementary schools in the United States. And it's a before school program, an hour before school, three to five times a week, where kids come in and they play very vigorous games. They're running, jumping, playing tag, chasing each other, uh, having fun, laughing an hour before school. Uh, and it's both inner city and suburbs, and it uh, it catches on very quickly. The teachers, uh, the regular teachers, see the benefit, and especially the special ed teachers see the tremendous benefit that this is uh, given to the uh, mainly K through five uh, uh, students. So uh, real elementary school. Um, uh, benefits and it's volunteer in, in most places, <clears throat> uh, but now it's been adopted into the first period by an, um, um, a number of schools, certainly in this area where it comes from. That's that's great. I like the idea of voluntary too as well. I think that's. Do you think that's important for these type of programs that it is voluntary, or do you think 
when kids are young, they need to have that structure and discipline implemented on them, or do you think it's better for them to find it themselves? I think when they're in that kind of uh, age group, that it's best that you come in and say, you're going to do this. In other words, to, to have that as a starting point, because especially today with the, the, our, our screens, our screen addiction that we all have, but they have it in spades because they were born with the iPad in their crib. You know, come on. It's, it's, uh, and certainly the iPhone because everybody's on it everywhere in the world. And it's, uh, um, it's something that we have to deal with. And so if kids are given their choice, they'd much rather do esports or, uh, uh, or, spend their time on on the web or playing these multi playing player games that are all over the world that are fun and interesting and addicting and um, you and they, know and they take advantage of our internal systems that were originally meant to help us escape predators and to find food so they're tapping into that dopamine that reward system but it's drip by drip, and so you have to keep going back for more and more where exercise really completes that circle of planning, of visualizing, of running, of actually being active, and your body feels that you've completed what you're supposed to be doing, which is running, getting your heart rate up, and all those systems kick in and make you feel better. Yes, and and uh, exactly. I mean, it is... It, it is really uh, something that they've, you know, the game makers uh, look to addict you. That's their job. And so uh, because then you'll buy it, you'll use it, you use it more. And then now they have all these financial ways of getting kids involved, you know, to, uh, you know, have members all over the world or spend time on it and you have to pay for it now it's finally it's generating such income for these plays the, these game makers definitely and one of the surprising things about uh, especially online uh, games on the phone is that a large percentage of the people who play play like candy crush and actually spend money on it are are women who are over the age of 45 to like 60 that's one of the biggest uh, markets for those types of games. Do you think it has to do with the lack of physical outlets for, for especially women after they get done raising their children and they're not running around chasing their kids anymore and they have more of, just like all of us, more of a sedentary lifestyle and those games are very, very attractive to get those dopamine hits? Yes, it, it, I, I call it the dopamine squirts. Back, back <laughs> I like that. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, you, you do get that. And certainly I think that's a, a big, uh, a big problem because people, uh, you know, I see it all the time and I'm on an airplane a lot and people are playing, you know, the, the elderly people over 40 are playing candy crush, uh, or some variant thereof. And, uh, they're exciting. They're interesting. They're, they're fun. Uh, and it keeps, I mean, it's a way to pass time for four or five hours on a plane. Um, and there are a lot of games like that, that, that uh, you can 
they corral you in. And so you're saying, should kids, I mean, ideally the best, the best person coming into exercise or games or athletics should be voluntary. You get the more bang for your buck, but when you're younger, you need to have a structure uh, and, and a structure to get out of the addiction. And you're, we're seeing this a lot with uh, all of our addicts, um, uh, from cigarettes to opiates to gaming addicts, uh, that exercise is a way to help manage the craving. Uh, we know that in, in, in Spark, I talk, there's a whole chapter on addictions um, and how, how it works. And just as you say, I mean, we're uh, providing the dopamine and norepinephrine and serotonin, all this stuff uh, that the addictive substance really targets. And also, by the way, the endocannabinoids, which is where marijuana comes in. Uh, which is a big factor in in our feeling satiated after we exercise. Um, it's uh, right up there with the endorphins and the marathon, which is happening as we speak, uh, was the one to really identify to to popularize the endorphins, the our endogenous morphine, because in the seventy late seventies early eighties. We had learned about the endorphins, um, and we were also learning that, that why were these runners running so long, and uh, you know what the heck was going on, and so they started measuring their endorphins, and their endorphins levels were sky high, so it became associated with the uh, sort of the uh, the nirvana state that you get into at about. Mm, if you're really running at about mile 16, 17, and you continue through, uh, so you can run through the pain, you don't notice it, you run through injuries that you don't even recognize because you're running and you're, you're in this uh, sort of pain-free, carefree state, partly by the endorphins, but now we know all kinds of partners uh, participate. It's not one thing. It's not so simple. Um, well, I think that's what we're finding about the human body and the human mind is is the absolute um, seemingly infinite complexity between the connections between when you raise one neurotransmitter, it affects, you know, everything else as well. So when we're trying to use medicines to regulate that system, uh, it could have unintended consequences. I think we see a lot of side effects with psychiatric medications. Do you think that exercise is now more understood by physicians as a form of medicine and is it starting to replace some of these uh, antidepressants anti-anxiety medications i don't think that it's to answer you the last part of your question i don't think it's replacing at all it did it, it, it's more of a compliment mm -hmm. uh in most people's mind but i i think what's happening is that yes physicians are much more interested in wellness then, and that means the whole person rather than just disease from cancer treaters to uh, certainly uh, diabetes treaters to cardiac uh, docs to 
uh, lung docs, you know, the, and orthopedic docs. Of course, they get a lot of business with things like CrossFit and uh, other things where people overdo it, uh, which is a real problem. But, uh, and like me with my shoulders, you know, both of them gone uh, from overuse and uh, and in some, some case of abuse uh, of it without knowing it. But so docs, I think, are beginning to pay attention in a big way to, to wellness and, uh, and, and how important it is. Certainly when we look at Alzheimer's disease and cognitive decline in general, they're, they're, the biggest treatment is wellness. I mean, being well. Uh, it's all the things that I mentioned in Go Wild, but other people have really formulated it to look at uh, ways of reducing the onset of cognitive decline and Alzheimer's disease, and that is to be well, to exercise, to have the right kind of diet, to sleep uh, enough, to meditate, to remain in the moment. It's not just meditating, but being in the moment. Um, and nature, and, and, and certainly the big one, is being connected and remaining connected. Yeah, definitely. Socialization is so important. Uh, we had a, a guest on Howard Bloom. He's a he's a scientist, researcher, author, and he wrote that isolation is the worst poison that you can do to a human. It basically is something that if you isolate an individual, that's that's basically like torture, and that we don't respond well to isolation. So I think socialization is is vitally important. And you talked about earlier about BDNF. Can you talk a, a little bit more about miracle growth for the brain? Yes, BDNF. Uh, it, BDNF is, is what I call evolution's gift to us. In that uh, what BDNF is, it's a growth factor, brain-derived neurotropic factor, but it's a growth factor in the brain. It's the mother of all growth factors, meaning in, in the brain. It promotes growth. And this is the way the brain thrives. And this is the way we thrive. Uh, we now know that it's an antidepressant. It's anti-stress. It com combats cortisol and stress hormone and other stress uh, elements. It also uh, improves are the growth of our individual nerve cells. And now we know that one of the big way that we produce more BDNF is, is when our brain cells fire, that it uh, releases our BDNF, but then it goes downstream in, in the neural chain and sends back information to this sending cell to turn the genes on to make more BDNF. So this is why we early on saw that exercise, which uses more brain cells than any other human activity, and that's something that most people don't realize, but more brain cells than any other human activity are used by movement in the brain. So when you're exercising, you're using those brain cells. And what does that do? That causes a, an efflux, an outpouring of BDNF, but also 
making more. So this is why we see higher levels of BDNF in exercising people. And, uh, and this is all good for the moment as well as for the long term because it helps our brain grow. And that's what we all want, right? Uh, brain cells, they, they do atrophy over time, is that correct? And so they are actually replaced. And if they don't have anything to do, then do they just go away? Or if, if we're stimulated and we're in these novel situations and we're exercising, they actually have a purpose to, to replace and to actually help us to, to think better and to feel better. Yes, because the, the, the brain and like nature, or the human, human nature, it is it is parsimonious, meaning if you're not using it, we're going to use it someplace else. So if you're not using all these proteins and stuff in the nerve cell, well, let's break it down and use it over here. And so you'll break it down and then you're, you're going to thin it out or actually cause the erosion to occur. And where there's a saying in neuroscience that's been there forever now. Oh, forever meaning 30 years um, it's uh, use it or lose it if you don't use your brain cells you're gonna lose them and this is what happens uh, so often today when we're in our sedentary uh, screen addicted world which is why probably we're seeing more of this early onset of Alzheimer's disease of course there are other factors. I mean, the genetic factors play a, a, a role, and in some cases, certainly for early Alzheimer's disease, probably a very big role in in leading to uh, the the kind of thing that your 40s year old friend's father had, or somebody had that that died uh, or had uh, Alzheimer's at the age of 40, six or so. That's very young. Very young. And we talk about the decline, cognitive decline. How much does chronic stress play a role? And how much of that is something that we can mediate through exercise? Well, it, you said it's a softball question. Uh, that's great. Certainly, it, it, uh, it, it, chronic stress is, is one of the factors, too. And that's why meditation, sleep, uh, right diet, right exercise, right balance, all that is to reduce the, the stress levels. Stress is the killer for, for the brain, okay? It, it is the eroder. And, and stress, with all of its constituents, with inflammation, I mean, when you talk to, to anti-Alzheimer docs today, they're talking about lowering the risk of, isolate, of, of inflammation. Um, and, and you do that in so many ways. And by the way, a big, a big way to produce more inflammation in a person is to isolate them back to Howard, Harold Bloom, uh, because that leads to more uh, neuroinflammation. And then you get into all kinds of trouble like anxiety, like depression, like, uh, early cognitive decline, like all kinds of uh, untoward events and for the body as well, by the way, not just the brain. I would agree with that. I personally, I've been chronically ill for 30 years at 
age 11, I, had, I was diagnosed with ulcerative colitis. So that's an autoimmune inflammatory type deal. And at age 12, I had my colon removed because it was so bad. And from then, I've had 20 surgeries and 50 hospital stays and hundreds of doctor's visits. So I still have like a real problem with inflammation. And I call it the inflamed brain. When I feel really sick and there's a flare up, the way my body feels is how my brain feels as well, that I that I do go into a depressive state, that I do feel, unfortunately, there's suicidal ideation that comes along with that sometimes as well. And it feels like it's really hard to get out of that downward spiral, and it feels like there's a physical process going on. Well, there, there, uh, without a doubt, there there is, and, and you can break it. Well, you probably learned that, uh, you know, you break it by exercising, you know, and that, that puts the damper on the downward spiral and, uh, and it can both mentally brain wise and physically for your entire body. So if you ran a marathon, I'm probably, you probably, uh, uh, really did, had a good effect on your, on your use ulcerative colitis as well. It was, yeah, I can still remember you talk about like the schedule. I think it's really important. I'd written a couple screenplays as well. And in this book called Story, they talk about creative limitations, that humans need creative limitations to really flourish. And so when you're running and you have a schedule, you have those creative limitations where you know what you're going to be doing for the rest of the, for the rest of the week. And you're going to be know what you're doing for the last, the next four months. You have it planned out. I think the body is similar to almost like a child. And you talked about earlier, you know, kids in elementary school that you have to um, not enforce, but to have that structure for them. In a lot of ways, I feel like my body is like a, a kid who, who needs that structure, needs to be told what to do and when. Absolutely. And we, and we all have it. That's why we, we, we do, as, as we age and have more, a little more flexibility, perhaps, uh, you can structure that in. And that's why you see uh, some of the, uh, the the giants in whatever field, uh, you know, they're they're not going to miss their tennis date or their golf date or their exercise or their running. Uh, you know, it's a it's a part or swimming in the morning or biking if you're in California. You know, it's like that's that's what they do. Uh, it's it's really. Uh, it's 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 something that they would not miss because they know it works so well for them. It's very vital. I heard somebody say that vitamin M is for movement, and it's that critical to us that we need it just like we need uh, essential minerals and essential vitamins to to live our best life. Oh, absolutely. I think that's that goes without saying. I mean, you're if you're if you're not moving, you're eroding. You know, and 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 our sedentary nature, our sedentary world is is uh, you know putting us in our seats and and keeping us there. Our lives being dictated by the screens that are around us. Definitely, and I think you were talking about the screens and addiction. That I was reading where I heard that unfortunately suicides in younger women in their teenage years is actually on the rise too. And some people are actually saying that that has to do with the rise of social media and them comparing themselves to all these other people and it having a really negative impact on these young girls' lives. 
Oh yeah, I would think that that's that's a very big uh, promoter of this. So as well, I think that being a teenager today is pretty is a, seems like it's a lot tougher than it used to be. Not just about getting into college, blah blah blah, but about okay, what am I going to do with my life? You know, am I am I able to think about doing putting the work in to go fashion a career in and the career paths are so different today where the choices are huge but there's no guide guiding light um you know there's just uh, it, it's just it's just it's 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 overwhelming and we're going to see this even more with the growth of artificial intelligence and and seeing you know, a lot of jobs at low levels, at mid levels, even encroaching on the higher level of employment are going are going to be threatened uh, by the machines. You know, Walmart's hiring. Walmart's investing in what I don't know, thousands and thousands of. Uh, janitorial robots, you know, I mean, to, to work with the janitorial staff, but that means they're eliminating a good part of that. And, uh, and pretty soon this stackers in the, in the stores will be robots. And, and now Amazon is already using robots. You know, all that is happening. It's happening. But, uh, uh, so, it's, it's an exciting time, but it's a really challenging time. And I think the, the, we're not we're not educated. We don't know what to educate, actually, uh, for our kids that are coming up and they're at sea. And that's what I think is great about Spark, especially, because you talk about some, a young lady who has, uh, had to take a test. I think it was her SATs. And she had been kayaking and running and she was you know developing those coping mechanisms for stress and she actually went for a swim i believe right before the test and she came to take the test and she was wet and cold but she did extremely well because she knew that she had that that active coping mechanism i think that's what you called it that they were able to handle that and the more that we equip our kids with those basic elements of how the human body works I think humans will scale and they'll find ways to be creative and create things that we can't even imagine yet. Oh, absolutely. And I think, yeah, there are so many examples of that, that uh, kids now realizing that they have to uh, exercise, not just to get the wiggles out, but to turn their brains on. I mean, we used to say to get the wiggles out, right? But uh, to burn off excess energy. They're actually energizing themselves when they exercise before a test or before sitting down to read. It's not they're burning anything off. They're increasing the energy driven to their brain. So their brains are turned on. Um, and, uh, and I think kids are learning that uh, and putting that in action. Now, do you think that what would be the ideal situation for just the average person out there? You talk about being in that moderate heart rate zone or that active heart rate zone where you, where your blood's pumping enough, but you're not exhausting yourself, that you're 
like you said, energizing yourself, where would you fall? Where would that be in the, the heart rate range for most people? Well, it depends. I, it, it's usually what we'd say the moderate uh, range is 65 to 70% of your higher, maximum heart rate. Um, and then you get above that and you get, that's, that's when you get to the point where you're a little breathless. It's harder to keep a conversation going. You're starting to sweat. And then above that, you start to really sweat. Uh, you start to really, uh, there's a lot more effort. And then when you get into the higher uh, intensities, which I also talk about in the book, and which is now a huge area of interest in in science, but also amongst people, is high intensity exercise. You know, where you're talking about Tabata and and uh, the CrossFit people and uh, the Orange Theory, which is another uh, group kind of thing that may not you may not be aware of, but it's huge. It's the biggest growth uh, sport area in the country. Wow. More more Orange Theory places are open up all the time, and it's it's basically high intensity training, mm-hmm. high intensity interval training. You know that that uh, for an hour you just knock yourself out, and uh, kids, younger millennials and mid range kids, mid range adults are are really buying into it as a way to you know, really condition their heart rates, really condition themselves so that they can uh, really are equipped to power through lots of stuff in life. And that's that's a good point about when you are exercising your cardiovascular system, that it's producing these positive chemicals that help strengthen your brain, make new connections, and it also helps to calm you down. I think that's it almost seems too good to be true. Is there any downside to regular exercise besides hurting yourself, some, like some of these CrossFit folks? Uh, any downside? I, I don't know. There's probably no downside to it. Um, there are probably 8% of us who really don't feel better after we exercise, but it's, it's, a, it's a small percentage. Uh, but most people feel better. That is, their mood is better. Uh, it's not those eight percent don't feel worse; they just don't feel better. Uh, and it may be because of you know we'll study them and figure out why. But it may be because BDNF isn't as high, or some kind of other. There's so many factors involved in us feeling better. Like you know, I mean, we got norepinephrine, dopamine, serotonin. Uh, acetylcholine, we, we have GABA, we have uh, the endorphins, endocannabinoids, BDNF, IGF-1, FGF-2, VEGF, all these factors that are growth promoting for the brain and all have a very positive effect on our current state of mood and well-being. Well, that's great. I- it's so amazing and, and empowering to read your book, Spark, and I look forward to reading. Is it Go Wild? Is that is that the, the current the, book? The other one is Go Wild, the newer one, which you're, you, you alluded to in terms of the Paleolithic understanding or looking at our genes as a, as a guidepost of how we should be living, and that's what Go Wild is about. 
Fantastic. I look forward to reading that as well, John. What would you give people as far as a recommendation? I know everybody is variable and, and everybody's so different, but what would you recommend? Is it three to five days a week, 30 minutes to 45 minutes, or what would be the prescription that you would, that you would recommend? Yeah, I, I think to start off with uh, at least three to three days a week to, to push it to 30, then 40 minutes uh, on those days, but then, Try to increase it. Try to incorporate this into your daily life somehow. Uh, the Health and Human Services says we should be exercising now for about 220 minutes a week, which is a lot more than 10,000 steps a day, which is, uh, you know, a really good beginning. Uh, but it's it's really great when people are at that point and then they can go do more and it's always about pushing yourself a little bit harder to attain more balance to return attain more strength attain more uh, endurance uh, so and whatever is going to make it something you'll come back to and that's where joining these groups uh, for the you know, those women who are playing Candy Crush that you mentioned, something like Zumba, uh, a Zumba group three times a week. It's fun. It's interesting. They'll get into it. Or, it's dancing. Yes, yes. But, uh, and then a the big one today for our younger adults is yoga. I mean, it's just wild how many people are in yoga groups all over the country. And uh, it's great. It's fantastic because it's, it truly is exercise. It truly has a lot of the same benefits as running, swimming, biking, all those things make our brain work really, really good. That's, that's great advice to start small and incorporate it. And the idea when I'm really feeling ill and feeling sick, sometimes I have to set my timer for just five minutes and go walk. And that's the victory for the day. And I think a lot of people, unfortunately, there's a lot of chronic autoimmune issues out there. And you wrote in your book about that we need to go from just surviving to thriving. And I think that Spark and Go Wild are two books that can definitely help people change that mindset to just survival and, and pushing and growing. Because like you said, if you're not growing, then the alternative is decaying, really. You know, that's, right. that's the two forms of existence that we have in life. Now, you did talk about that exercise, the best type, is that what you keep coming back for. And I think diet is the same way. Do you touch on diet and go wild as well? Oh, yeah. No, we did. there's a whole chapter on diet. There's a chapter on sleep, a chapter on, on nature, a chapter on uh, uh, mindfulness, and uh, a chapter on uh, connection, and small tribes, and about how to integrate these in in your life, and uh, which are really the the genetic prescription, the genetic demand that we do these things because we evolved in that kind of environment, and that's what our genes are setting us up for. And then, of course, our lives are so different today, so we have to deal with that. Definitely, and I think that's a great way to put it: genetic prescription. Because like you said, our lives do not match up with how our genes involved in the environment that we, that we did live in. And SPARK is a great way to see how exercise heals the brain, that the body can cure the brain and vice versa. 
And I think that the Go Wild, it has the whole prescription that people nowadays are so hungry for. So I do recommend everybody go out and buy Spark, go out and buy Go Wild, and find out for yourself how you can control more of your life and to create a better brain, not only for today, but in the future. So John, thank you very much for your time today. I really appreciate it. Okay, it's been fun talking with you. Excellent. And thank you, everybody, for listening today. And we will see you next time. Bye-bye.